Hi everyone, welcome to Pod episode 6, our first episode of 2022. It's a new year, but it's the same old us. Uh, thanks for coming back to join us. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host Stu. How you doing, Stu? Uh, yeah, um, okay. Um, I, um, anybody that reads the forum might know that I've um, recently tested positive for COVID, so just um, getting over that. But yeah, fine, uh, absolutely good to, good to go and looking forward to this tonight. Who hasn't at this stage? Yeah, well, absolutely. <laughs> Speaking of people who have tested positive for COVID, um, a slight spoiler there, but uh, we're delighted to be joined by Hibernian's first ever black player, something he's very proud of, Kevin Harper. We'll be the first to admit that this is a little bit of an unknown for us because uh, for me, Kevin was playing for Hibs just before I was born and when I was a baby. Uh, for you, Stuart, you've kind of got these sort of infant or or childhood memories of Kevin. Yeah, it's actually quite. Um, it's probably the most starstruck I'm going to be because I, 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 um, Kevin was around Hibs when I was sort of between about maybe um, seven, six, seven through about sort of ten, eleven year old. Um, and that's when I think you still believe superhero uh, footballers are kind of superheroes <laughs> and a bit infallible. Um, I think when you speak to modern players, you kind of know they're human beings. Whereas with, with Kevin, I've still got this image of him as being being some kind of superhero. So yeah, looking forward to it, but a bit nervous. Absolutely. Well, I, you know, we we always get questions from the fans on the forum, and they're always really helpful. And you know, if if not directly inspiring a question, definitely um, helping us sort of guide the, the overall conversation of the topic. But for this one, we've had to lean heavily on that because of the fact that we don't have too much first-hand experience and uh, as Stuart's just said there he thinks Kevin Harper is some kind of superman so we're not the most reliable sources but um, neither is Wikipedia as we're soon to find out but you know before we we go into that which will be very soon we just want to touch on the usual points for us about the forum do the prediction league I I don't think I need to say more than that at this stage we've 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 definitely advertised it um if you haven't started yet you're probably goosed but for those that are are still involved um it looks like it's hotting up uh, I know Stuart, you you wanted to talk about the buses. It was it was very much your baby. Yeah, um, we we obviously we're on we're on buses to sort of semi-finals and finals, and the the semi-final was a a great day out on the buses. Um, final was a bit um, <laughs> a bit chopping changes. We got confirmation the club we were going to would still take us then. At the very last minute, they done a sort of one eighty, and I totally understand why. Um, you know, they, they had to protect their staff in the lead up to Christmas. Didn't want anyone isolating. Um, but I just kind of wanted to thank everyone that travelled. Obviously, I I didn't travel in the end because um because of my positive COVID test, so I had to kind of rope people in to look after the bus at the last minute. They said everyone was great. Everyone was really understanding about the the situation. Um, so yeah, just just kind of almost a, a word of thanks to everyone that that travelled to say um you know th- thanks very much for. Been so understanding about the the late last minute issues we had and for behaving basically because I, I I heard from a, a few sources that there was one or two buses that had um had a few issues shall we say with people not being able to go into to pubs so um enjoying some uh, festivities on the buses shall we say <laughs> yeah I mean it's a cup final I think we can forgive some. Uh, anyway, I won't go into that. Yeah, in terms of the uh, the forum, uh, there's not loads to advertise because uh, as of this point, the winter break has been brought forward and uh, we don't have too much football to look forward to. But of course, we are about to enter into January. The transfer windows are always pretty active for us and uh, we'll, we'll certainly be banging that drum on social media as well. You know, uh, it's it's something. It's a little bit of a taste and we're, we're sure Hibs will be active this, this transfer window. So do get involved in the threads there, especially if you know something. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in, in the no status is there to be had for <laughs> anyone that wants it. Cool. And uh, with no further ado, I think on that point, we'll, uh, we'll lead into the interview with Hibernian's first black footballer, the first black manager in Scottish football for over 15 years, Kevin Harper. Mm-hmm. 
thank you very much kevin for joining us and uh pod we're delighted to to sit down and speak with you firstly how are you doing i'm good thank you good uh, getting ready for the christmas period uh, a bit gutted that this is going out and we can't go and watch football games well we can if you're lucky 500 <laughs> uh, but you know uh, i think we're at that pro- we're at that point where you know football's really important to us all but you know, other than that, yeah, you know, things are going well. Yeah, looking forward to Christmas, spending it with, spending a good bit of time with the family. Glad to hear that. Um, yeah, it's interesting you, you touch upon you know football, uh, the role it plays for all of us. Where we're kind of interested to start really in, in talking about you know what football means for you now. We know you've got your your academy that you're you're trying to grow at the moment, and uh, we show you're sort of involved in in other ways. Can you talk us you know a little bit about what your your career in football looks like at the moment? At the moment, uh, I've got a, a sports management company, uh, an academy, uh, and I do a lot of one-to-one stuff in group state group coaching sessions for different teams, uh, different amateur teams and junior teams. So uh, pretty hands-on, uh, pretty busy. But at the end of the day, you know, football has been my life for for so so long, which you know it's hard to to step away from it. But you know, I enjoy it. I enjoy uh, helping kids become better players and better people as well, most importantly. You know, I always think that football is a great a great uh, opportunity for, for kids to do really well, but I think it's also about making them good people, trying to make them good people as well. You know, as a, as a, as a coach, it shouldn't be about, it should never be about the coach, it should be always, always, always about the player. You, you've certainly touched upon it there. If you were to divulge a little bit more about your ethos as a kind of, as a youth coach, if, if you like, and your, your philosophy towards uh, coaching young footballers, could you could you talk a little bit? Yeah, about that? yeah. I, th- I think for for me, it's about trying to get the best out of kids, you know, and and helping them become the best that they can be, you know. So for me, it's about making sure they they understand the basics, they can do the basics. I I, I feel just now that you know there's a lot, a lot of things in football that kids can't do and don't understand, uh, and I think we're we're very orientated of of coaching rather than, you know, maybe letting them learn themselves by making mistakes, you know, and, and rectifying and, and helping them to understand, you know, and you understand trying to get into their head and why they're doing their things or why they've done that, you know, because I think for me, and that goes that goes back to me a long, long way to, actually, I was I just came through at Hibs and I was playing in the reserves and I, I, made, a, I made a run. I was playing against Richard Goff and he said, Kevin, why, wee man, why are you making that run? And I said, ah, oh, this, I explained why. And he said, I'm never, ever going to get out there. So for me, it's it's about trying to give my experience, the experience that I've gained throughout my many years in football, working under some of the best managers and working under some of the best players that the world has seen uh, and pushing that on and helping kids develop and try and be the best that they possibly can be. You know, not every kid is going to make it. Everybody has, a, every kid has a dream of making it. If I can make them better, better as a footballer, then that's my job done. But I think also I've got a duty of care to make sure that they're better people as well. I think that's the duty of care that I have so that if when they when and if they leave my coaching, my academy, then they can look back and say, you know what, he done the best that he can he could for me. You touched on it a wee bit there, um, Kevin, where you said, um, you know, about um, your own time coming through at Hibs. Could you talk to us a wee bit more about your own sort of youth football experience, both at boys club level and, and basically how you ended up signing for Hibs? Yeah, well, I was, uh, I, 
goes goes back to I may as well go back to the start. You know, I was out playing football with my mate in the street, uh, and he said, "Oh, I need to go." And I was just, I said, "Where are you going?" And he says, oh, "I'm going to football coaching. I'm going to football." And I was like, "All right, what am I meant to do?" And he says, "I don't know." <laughs> as as you go, as a as a ten year old, I don't know. Uh, so I says, "Can I come with you?" And he says, "Well, if it's okay with your mum, went up and asked my mum and." She said yes, yeah. so we we off we off we trudged from from Postal Park right to the back end of Site Hill, which is probably about a mile and a bit, you know, as as nine year olds, ten year olds, and started playing with a team called Celtic North. Uh, was there for about a year uh, in the old ash, uh, red ash pitches. I don't know if some of the some of the listeners will, will understand or be old enough about the red ash pitches and the black black ash pitches. They just see astro and grass now. So that shows you how old I am. Uh, and then went to went to a team called West Park, who, you know, I, I think for me is is growing up with, with a sing, a single parent. Uh, my dad was a wasn't wasn't about, he was a he was an alcoholic. Uh, and the two the two coaches that I had there, Billy Harvey and, and uh, Bert Brown, who unfortunately are no longer with us, were really, really important in my development as a as a player and a person. And I think you know, a lot, of, a lot of what I try to give, put over to the kids is, you know, live the experience, live the experience of how it can go well and how it can go wrong. And then when I was at West Park, I was I was playing in a tournament uh, in Paisley uh, and Alec Miller was there watching, his, there watching his son and there was a commotion on the, on the other pitch and I was doing really, really well, running the show, so to speak, and uh, he turned around and watched me and then he... Asked me if I wanted to sign. Well, he, he got in touch with my boys' club. I was training me, I was training me hearts, I was training me hips, I was training me Dundee, Dundee United, uh, Tottenham. Uh, and I decided, you know, he came up to my house, uh, spoke sat and spoke to my mum uh, with myself. And just I felt that it was a good fit for me. It was a good fit. I enjoyed the Hibs training when we were trained. We trained under Martin Ferguson. He was a he was a youth manager at that point, you know. So in, in, uh, in Hamilton so you know I really really I really enjoyed that I really enjoyed the vibe as well uh, it was, I felt that it was a good fit and then you know I decided to sign you know Alec Miller as I say was in my house he went back down and his car had been broken and his stereo had been took <laughs> <laughs> so when, it, when that happened I thought oh he's not he's not going to sign me but thankfully thankfully he probably had enough cash to A fix it get a window fixed and get a new stereo so I was I was happy to sign I think um, obviously the the experience there is quite different from what a what a lot of young lads go through today, where they're you know within these sort of academy setups, at, you know, as young as nine, ten year old sometimes now. Yeah. Do you think the way you sort of came into the game was better? Do you think it's it's an improved system now, or do you think there's a balance to be struck between the two? I think I think the difficult thing is now kids don't really go out in the street and play. You know, I was I was from a, I was from a scheme. You know, a, a you know a very a very very poor poor area in Glasgow. So I was at the only thing that we could do was go out and play football or play or run about, you know, that was our probably getaway from, you know, the hardships that our, our parents were probably going through. You know, a lot of our parents, you know, there wasn't wasn't many cars there. So so I think I think for me we, we've lost a little bit of that. You know, you see so many no no ball games signs all over the place. And I think it's a different world. It's probably a different world now. There's a lot probably more bad people out there as such, you know. So parents are always scared to, you know, let their kids go and wander the streets 
you know, because they don't know what's going to happen. They don't know whether they're going to get any any trouble, any fights. You know, they're going to get took away. You know, so I don't think I don't think you had that in a scheme. Everybody sort of looked out for each other, so it was a wee bit easier then. I think I think it's great that what we're trying to do with kids just now. But I think the biggest issue for me is the kids are always more often than not on AstroTurf where the ball you don't get the bobbles, you don't get the you know, the, the foot sliding away from you and grass pitches, red ash pitches, et cetera, as you did back then, you know. So I think we've missed a little, we miss a little bit of that. But at the end of the day, where we are in the world and where we are in football is is where we are, you know, and that's, that's you know, is, is the, I think it, the, the, my, the, I think my area was, era, era was better. I don't know. I think, I think you can look at it. I don't think you can class eras because there's so many different things that you have to put in into place you know you, th- you think about even the era before me you know the pitches were horrific you know I, some of the pitches I played on were, were fantastic you know I, I think I Easter Road I think uh, you know Celtic Rangers you know even at, even at Tyne Castle you know these pitches were really really good Aberdeen you know so these pitches were good but you know you think about maybe five years before me ten years where Mud was up to your ankles, you know. Now a day's pitches are even better, you know. Some people complain that they're too hard, you know. So I think it's very, very difficult. But I think by the looks of things, if you look at the Scotland setup, things seem to be getting better, you know. Whether that's whether that's down to better coaches, you know, having to have badges, I'm not a hundred percent sure on that, you know. But ultimately. I think as a as a nation, we're probably in a better position than what we were maybe 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. So in terms of some of the the kind of social issues that you you talked about, football being a kind of remedy for 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 lots of kids, particularly from from schemes, as you would put it. Where do you see now that being sort of addressed, particularly with the work that you're doing? What what are some of the things that you're proud of, and you know some of the areas that you think you've helped in in your time doing the the coaching? I think I think probably the areas that I have helped in is is making kids understand that you know you can come it's it's a difficult difficult industry to be in it's difficult to become a footballer you know lots of people don't get that you know I'm I've been privileged that I, I played in the Premiership in England the Premiership in Scotland and and played in Europe you know so for me I'm privileged you know I, I I'm privileged to look back and say that I done that you know it was a hard slog you know but it's it is a hard slog, and I don't think kids and, and people realise how how difficult it is. They go and they see players on your twenty grand, your thirty grand, your hundred grand a, a week. You know, you see see them jetting off in private private jets and having the best cars. And you know, I think there's a re, the people. You know, you look at you look at the two probably the best players in the world. You look at Messi and you look at Ronaldo, and you see them jetting off here, there, and everywhere. But what you don't see is you don't see the dedication and what they do behind the scenes, you know, how how they live their life and how footballers live their life. You know, it's okay. Now I can go down, I can go down the local pub and go and sit and get pissed for, you know, a day. You know, don't get me wrong, I'll probably come home and have no house because my missus will lock to change the doors. <laughs> but you know, it's very different now. It's very, it's very, it's very regimented now. You know, even from it's very different from when I played. You know, and the, the the pressures the pressures are different now. You know, you could you could walk down the street, you know, and have no cameras. Whereas anything that you do, there's always somebody with a camera now. You know, and somebody's always willing to put it on social media. They're always willing to say, 
something. So for me, it's about trying to trying to help kids understand that they have to be dedicated. They they two hours that they do with their, their boys club isn't enough to get you to become a professional footballer. I think you you touched on it um sort of a bit about your background um you know and you've obviously you obviously got a tough tough upbringing. Um, when you sort of made your debut in the first team, you went into a team, you know, with a lot of experienced heads in there. You know, you had guys like Gordon Hunter, Pat McGinley, you know, who'd been around the block with him. Yeah. Um, you know, how how intimidating did you find that and how much do you think your own background shaped that? You always came across as a really confident young player. Did did you have a sort of real was it a determination that, you know, to prove you belonged? I, I think I think for me it, it stemmed when before I was even before I was in the first team, you know. There was there was a lot of hype round about me group coming in, you know, for reasons that are unbeknown to me. You know, I was I was quick, I was powerful, you know, but I didn't have I didn't have the best skill in the world, you know. I, I worked hard, and I think when I I think it was it came when Alec Miller shouted me over, you know, from being in the reserves and going into the first team training, and you know thinking my legs were going to buckle under, under me as I, as I ran across. And then it, the standard being higher, and I think probably the first thing I'd done was I tackled, I think it was Graham Mitchell, I think. Went in on a slide tackle with Graham Mitchell, and I don't, he wasn't too happy, put it that way. And I think the rest of that, the rest of that training session, I think I get booted every, everywhere. Anytime I went through, anytime I went, we played the game, anytime I was near anybody and the ball came, I get put put my backside, so to speak. Uh, so I, I think for me it was I think I gained respect from the players then. You know that well, wait a wee minute, this we this we this we guy is is not scared. And I think that's probably because of my upbringing. You know, because when I was playing, you know, as 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 a young kid for West Park, I was getting racially abused every single game for the whole time with parents and people round the round the side of the pitch. So you eventually get a chip on your shoulder for that, through that because you have to have broad shoulders, you know. And I think for me, that's what it was about. It was, you know, I'm going to prove that being a black kid isn't going to hurt, isn't going to hold me back. And I think that's probably one of the biggest things that you know has has drove me forward to what I'm doing just now as well. You've you've obviously mentioned the racism issue there, and we are we are going to come back to that. I'm not not wanting you to think that we're trying to gloss over it at all. It's sort of a big part of where we want to go. Um, but something you've mentioned three or four times now is um Alec Miller, um the the often much maligned Alec Miller. What's your thoughts on Alec as a manager? I think one of the things I always remember was he had this reputation as being sort of quite a, a doer manager, quite a negative manager, and obviously as someone like yourself who was sort of quite a, a flair player, if you like, did you ever find he tried to you know, curtail your? Did you have a lot of time for him? No, I, I thought I th- for me, Alec Miller's probably one of the best managers I've worked under, and I, I say that, and I've got the utmost respect for Alec Miller and what he done for me, and what he done in the game as well. You know, I, I get that a lot of people think, and a lot of a lot of Hibs fans think he was, you know, he was negative. But I think when you when you actually look at our team, you know, when I when I broke in the team, the team would probably Willie Miller. Uh, Gordon Hunter, Tommy McIntyre, Graham Mitchell. And then you had Mickey Weir, you had Kevin McAllister, you had Pat McGinley, Brian Hamilton, you know, you had Keith Wright up top, you had Darren Jackson, you know, you had myself, you had Michael Weir, uh, sorry, uh, Michael O'Neill. You know, and that's me missing Joe Tortolano, you know, uh, <laughs> excuse me, Tony Ruggie as well. You know, I'm missing, I'm missing loads. I'm probably missing loads. But when you think about that team, 
that's a pretty attacking mm. team. There's only probably Brian Hamilton that's defensive in that whole front, you know, that you know, that attacking side. So I, I think when you look at it, it's probably not not the team that any Hibs fan looks back and goes, by the way, that was a really, a really attacking team. It's one of the teams that just gets sort of glossed over. And the, I think a lot of a lot of players will, a lot of people will go, ah, oh, Keith Wright was, you know, there was certain certain people in that team that people remember, if that makes sense. But as a team, they probably don't remember at all. You know, they, they probably remember, you know, Alec Miller being a negative, feeling that Alec Miller was a negative manager. But when you think about it, he wasn't. You know, I, I don't think I don't think he was everybody's cup of tea, put it that way. You know, but for me as as a as a young kid breaking into the team, you know, I, I learned I learned so much about him. And you know, as I say, I've got the utmost respect for him. And you know, I still I still call him Gaffer to this day, our boss. You know, so for me, that's 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 where he that's where he is. And I think it just shows what he went on to do after he left us. I think one of the things that obviously kind of got held against Alec for, for quite a long time was the fact you probably walked into a team that had a, an absolutely horrific derby record. Um, one, one of the things um, I've seen quite recently was it's, there's a Twitter page, the Hibs are here, and it shows sort of old pictures of Hibs in the 90s, and it's from the game where um, Gordon Hunter ended the, the hoodoo, if you like, and it's yourself celebrating in the background, yeah. and you look like a little schoolboy, you've got the strip that's about three sizes yeah. too big, you're just like the happiest little schoolboy. Well, <laughs> what's your memories of that game, and more generally the derbies against Hearts? Uh, that, was, that was my very first game, that was my very first ever derby, that game. Uh, and I remember, I remember going, I remember going into, into Tyne Castle and sitting down in the changing room and looking around the changing room and thinking, you know, because the 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 noise that was coming from, you know, the fact that we hadn't won for so long, you know, you could see the intrepidation in the players' faces, you know, the older older players. But you know, I was, I think I was eighteen at the time, and you know, not a care in the world, and going, you know what, it's only it's only another game, it's only another game because I wasn't I wasn't at I wasn't in the cauldron of it. I stayed in Glasgow, so I was away from it, if that makes sense. So I didn't see and I didn't hear as much as what the guys that lived in Edinburgh would or, or had been part of that longevity of not winning against against Hearts. You know, so for me it was just another game. And you know, yeah, you knew what it, you knew what it meant to to win the derby and you always do you always do against your against your your local rivals, especially your city rivals. So I think for me when that goal went in. You know, it was just sheer delight. I think everybody, the fans, the players, was just, it almost felt as if there was a huge, huge weight off our shoulders, you know, and we we ended up hanging on. And, and believe it or not, I've got, I think, my first three derbies, I was undefeated. So I, I, rem- I remember I remember that. And, you know, I, I, remember, I remember scoring goals against Hearts and I think probably saved, probably saved my best performances for against... Celtic Rangers and, and Hearts, where it really, really mattered, I think, when I look back on it. Uh, but I think for me, scoring scoring against your local rivals and winning is, you know, something that you're, it lives in the memory. It lives in the memory of both you and, you know, a lot of, a lot of fans, especially especially at that time, you know, especially at that time. And, and the fact that, you know, I scored, scored the winner again, you know, later on when, Hearts were going for the title and it almost pretty much burst their bubble, you know, is 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 a bit sweet as well. I think obviously that, that game was when I was going to come, so you've led me into it quite nicely. Is that was a huge high pressure game for Hibs because obviously, as you say, Hearts were real live contenders yeah. that year and we pretty much end ended their their time as that. Obviously, for us, it 
proved not to be quite enough. But how how high pressure was that game, and you know how how much pressure just in general was on the players coming towards the end of that season? It must have been a really really difficult environment to play them. I think it, I think it was I think it was difficult. It was difficult. I'd be I'd be telling lies if I was saying that it wasn't difficult. You know, but ultimately we put ourselves there. You know, I I think I think looking back on it, you know, I, I think looking back on it. Obviously, Jim Duffy was was in at the time, and I I think he, he probably I think he probably sold a lot of the experienced players probably too quickly, if that makes sense. And the players that came in done fantastically well, done fantastically well. And then we got a lot of injuries, and you know the players that came in where that experience was, there didn't there wasn't that experience to just maybe push us over the line or just you know get get the odd result that we needed. You know, because we were, when you look at it, we were in absolute free fall, you know, from the turn of the year. You know, and that, that was really, that was really, really difficult as well. You know, and there was a, there was a, there was a, just a, a better, better taste, even when you were going out at Easter Road. You know, the fact, I think the Hibs fans are like it, like, like most, you know, but I think when you're, when you're working hard and they can see that you're working hard, they get right behind you. But I think also when it's difficult times, and they're not happy with the club. It can be a really, really difficult environment to play in, you know. And I think, I think, I think most Hibs would agree. Most Hibs fans would agree with that. But at the end of the day, ultimately, we as players should be able to handle that. And I don't think that's where I, that's where I'm saying about the experience that we had in there. I don't think we had the experience that was able to handle that, unfortunately. There's quite a few questions. Um, I think there's enough time has passed to maybe talk about you leaving the club now. So <laughs> it was a lot of questions about sort of how that came around and how difficult a decision that was for you. I don't think anybody can begrudge a player a move down south, but um, how did that kind of come about and, and how much of it was really down to, to the kind of pressures and the difficulty sort of at the club at the time? No, I, I think it was not... I wanted to stay at the club. I wanted to stay at the club when I was... I, I've said this before. I was, I was really, really disappointed. But you know, Alec McLeish had, had said to me at the, at the beginning of the seat, just at the close season, that he'd spoken to my agent, and my agent had said that I wanted to move, which was total bullshit. Because my I hadn't spoken to my agent, I hadn't engineered any move, you know, and I was so I was I was really really disappointed the way it happened so quickly. It happened within a week, you know. I remember I remember play coming on as a as a sub against Clyde Bank, and then I think we were meant to play we were meant to play. Dundee United, we were playing Dundee United in the cup in the midweek and Derby had came in and asked me to go down and trial and the manager had phoned me and said, listen, uh, Derby have wanted you to go on a trial uh, and I said, right, okay and went down and then I think I had, I think that was on the Tuesday, the trial was on the Tuesday, I came back up and I had been, I, had, I was away and by the Friday and the, when, I, when, I, when I look back on it, I was really, really pissed off, if I'm honest, leaving because I didn't want it. First and foremost, I didn't want to leave. I didn't. I, I didn't ask for a move. I didn't. You know, I was. I wanted to stay and help us get back up to the Premier League. But as I got older, and I probably looked at it, and you know, the cold light of day, I think Alec McLeish wanted me, wanted to sell me to get money to rebuild the club or rebuild the team because I think at that time I was probably the only asset that the club had that could bring in relative sum of money that he could go and spend to bring better players in to get to get his to get his promoted back up to the Premier League. So, you know, in that sense, further down the line, 
I understood the, understood why he wanted rid of me. You know what he wanted to sell me, but still to this day, it still hurts that you know. And I've said this many many times that I didn't I didn't get the chance to just say you know what. Thanks very much to the fans for supporting me, believing in me. You know I had been there for six years. You know I had came through the I came through the youth. You know became the first black player ever to play for Hibs, and. That disappointed me, although I didn't. I only found that out that I was the first black player to play for Hibs about two years ago. Uh, so for me, the whole move, the whole move was a is a real better sweet for me. It was fantastic that I was moving to the Premiership, you know. But it was a real disappointment that I was leaving a, a club that I had so much, you know, so much joy and so much pleasure playing in, and had had sort of shaped the person that you know the player that I was. It's interesting to hear you say that, Kevin, but I have to say, scoring a goal against Liverpool or a away game at Clyde Bank, I think I know what I'd be maybe thinking. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, no, yeah, that's that, that's the thing. But at the, at the time, at the time, it was because it wasn't it wasn't engineered. It, it wasn't engineered. It not, never came from me, you know. And that was that was the fact that I was just sort of it was almost that I was there and then I was gone. I think that was it was more it was more a personal thing that you know. I didn't get the chance to say thank you very much to to the, the fans that had supported me through thick and thin, through injury, through you know the joys of scoring, scoring against Hearts, to the the, the disappointment of, of getting relegated. We'll certainly come back round to your time at Hibs and time in Scotland, but we'd be remiss not to talk a little bit about your your time in England. We'll um, certainly touch yeah. upon it because it, it was an incredibly successful time and. Uh, we know from experience that it's not always the case that a player can go down and really pave their way in England and and make as many appearances certainly as you did at a very high level. Yeah. Um. Very recently, I I travelled from from Norwich to Portsmouth, and when I mentioned your name, <laughs> um, to to both sets of local fans, although it was only three months you spent in Norwich, uh, there, yeah. there's there's a lot of uh, a lot of positivity, and um, particularly in Portsmouth, I mean, you're you're kind of regarded yeah. as a sort of cult hero down there. What, what do you think about that? Yeah. Sense? Yeah, no, I I think it's 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 it, the, the Portsmouth story is really really funny and and really strange in 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 a way because when when I was at when I was at Derby obviously I wasn't playing and I had been out and loan at Walsall and then you know Portsmouth had came in for me and you know I went down and spoke to Milan Mandrich and Tony Pulis and they both said they both sold the club to me I had. I had never experienced Portsmouth. I'd probably not even heard of them, if that makes sense. In the, in the sense of, you know, I was just in my bubble at Derby. I was in the Premier League. And then I went and spoke to Tony Pulis. I, I, I liked what he had said. I liked how Milan was talking about what the team was, what he was trying to do at the club and stuff. And and they really sold it to me. And then I went and I, I, I went down and signed in, you know, the first two weeks. I think I signed, I think I signed in February. Uh, in the first two weeks I was in shorts and t-shirts and I was like ha ha here we go this is brilliant sunshine no rain you know thinking about Scotland and in, in, in February time it's sleet it's snow it's horrible there's those palm trees there's palm trees in Portsmouth and I was like oh this is this is brilliant and then uh, it was one of one of Tony Pulis's running sessions on a Tuesday that we always done we never saw a ball on a Tuesday and I thought holy holy crap what have, what have I let myself in for here <laughs> but but you know the the Portsmouth for me is such an amazing club. Such the fans are you know really really top top draw. You know for for such a small twenty thousand you know seat at twenty thousand you know stadium. They made noise from day from minute one 
to minute ninety, whatever. But I did. I had my. I had my. I had my tough times there as well. You know, even even the, the season. The season we season before. Well, two seasons before we we won the league, we stayed up in the last day of the season. Fans were really really difficult with us. You know, we were getting we were getting slaughtered as we as we rightly should have. You know, a, a, a team of Portsmouth calibre should never be at the bottom of the championship. You know, with the players that we had, and then you know, two years later, you know, we get promoted to the Premier League. And the first half of the season, the, the fans were booing any time my name was getting mentioned. You know, the team sheet was getting read out, and Kevin Harper, all I heard was booze. You know, and then the second half of the season, you know, they were singing, they were chanting my name by the end of the end of the season. You know, and that was I had played, I played that season, the championships, winning season, with a double hernia, played left wing, played right wing back. Matty Taylor got in, well, Steve Stone got injured, played right wing back, and then Matty Taylor got injured, and I played left wing back the, the second half of the season. So, you know, it was it was it, it was fantastic, and that's probably that's probably why you know I've got that cult hero status because I think people knew what I gave. I gave hundred percent, you know, no matter what. I always wanted to play, you know. wasn't I was never I was never I was never the best, most skillful player, the best player in that team, you know, but. What I what I what I lost and you know skill and I gave and attitude and determination and blood sweat and tears you know for for that jersey and for every jersey that I've I've ever played I've played in. I didn't actually realise when I looked at the the Portsmouth squad that you played in some of the calibre of players that was there you know I seen guys like Paul Merson Yakubu like Shaka Hislop yeah. I mean that was some team you were you were playing them. Yeah, it was it was it was great. John Luca Festa was there. Ariane Dzulan, Boy Primus, uh, Matt Taylor. Steve Stone was there, uh, Merce, as you say, Jakubu, uh, Tim Sherwood was in as well, Nigel Quasi was there. You know, so we we had we had a, a, a Todorov as well was there. Uh, so there was there was a good caliber, right good caliber of players. And I always remember when when Harry came in in that season, he only kept he only kept myself, Gary O'Neill, Lenboy Primus, and uh, Nigel Quasi. Uh, Mark Burchill was there for for a bit, and then and then he left, but. I always, I always remember being on holiday and seeing the players that we were signing and thinking, how am I getting in this team? That was my thought close season. And I thought, I need to do something that, I need to do something different from what I'm doing. So I made sure I was I was the fittest I could be. I was it was in the best, best, best shape of my career. Uh, anytime I wanted to go and maybe work in my fitness, then I would go and mark Steve Stone in games because... Him or Matty Taylor just were absolute running machines. If I wanted to get do learn a bit of defending, I would go and try and mark Paul Merson because he was just he would drag you here, there, and everywhere. You know, if I wanted to do or I would I would mark Yakubu because he was he was lightning quick, he was so strong. And if I wanted to do a wee bit of attacking work, then I would go and you know work with Ariane Dazoo, he would be the defender. I'd go and stand up with Limboy Primus or and look at whoever was whoever was there heading Fox as well. So, you know, I, I changed I changed my I changed my thought process. And the the first two the first two the first two games it didn't work. It wasn't even in the squad. <laughs> so I was like, oh yeah, brilliant. Uh, and then as I say, I, I got lucky. Steve Stone got injured, you know, and uh, he was out for you know half the season. Played right wing back then, and then he came back. He was coming as he was coming back. Matt Taylor got injured. Uh, and he was out for the rest of the season and I played, you know, he played, he he, he was out the second, second half of the season and I played left wing back. So I was fortunate enough that I think I played probably one of, I think I was one of the most 
capped. Well, not capped, but appearances that season. It's funny you should mention caps there because we were going to come on to that. Is you obviously made a fair few appearances for Scotland um, under twenty ones. Um, you got you got a call up into the Scotland squad during your time down south by Bertie votes, but you never ever got yeah. a cap. You never made it off the the bench. Is that a, something that disappointed no. you? Did you think you, you deserved a cap? I, th- I think I think it really disappoints me. You know, I think that's that's the one thing that in football it does disappoint me that I never got to play for for my national and the national team. I think I deserved a cap. I think it, when you're playing week in, week out at the top, a team top of the championship, and all, all due respect, there's people playing 15 games in the in the Premier League in Scotland. I think there's a big a big discrepancy there. I I think if I'm honest, I don't think they thought the championship was that good a good a league then. You know, but I think when you look at the caliber players that were in it, I think I certainly for what I done, I think for where I was playing week in, week out, and I was doing well. You know, I think I certainly deserved a cap. And when I was in, when I was in the squad, some of the players are, you know, when I was, was training, coming up and saying, "Kevin, I can't believe you're not in the team." You know, your performances in training have been been superb. But you know, at the end of the day, that is football. That is football. I'm, I'm well aware of that. But you know, it is a it is a disappointment that I didn't didn't get a cap when when I look at some of the players that did get caps. Well, you're certainly going a lot further than either of us, so you can be proud of that. <laughs> So now we're going to bring back uh, Quickfire 5, um, a very popular segment. I've completely made that up. We've had no feedback whatsoever, but uh, we're going we're gonna to push on nonetheless. So five questions for you, Kevin, a lot less serious than the ones we've already asked. First up, what do you want for Christmas? Uh, a, pair of, a pair of gloves for coaching, so it keeps my, my, hands, my hands warm. Easy to please. <laughs> so other than yourself, if you could place a former Hibs teammate in the current team, who would it be and why? Ooh, Equinio. I think, he, I think he had that guy in, in determination. I would probably say Gordon Hunter, but two centre-halves do well. So if you could have played under any other Hibs manager, either past or present, that you didn't play under, who would you choose? Alan Stubbs. Because I would have won, I would have won the Scottish Cup. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I didn't think about that. It's actually quite an easy choice in the end. <laughs> How do you think you'd have got on with Stubbsy from, from what you've seen? I think I think I would have, I think I would have got on well with him. You know, I was I was in a, a little bit when he was was the manager, but you know, I'm, I don't care. I don't care really who the manager was. If I could have got to lift the Scottish Cup, we have then I would have been delighted. I, think, I don't even think. I think we got to the semi of the League Cup, maybe. I don't think we got very far with the Scottish Cup. Which actor would play you in a movie about your life? Uh, Denzel Washington. <laughs> Right, that. <laughs> Do you reckon he can kick a ball? Uh, he would learn. Well, <laughs> if he could, if he could kick the ball over the over the over the bar, then he would be fine. <laughs> if football hadn't worked out for you, which career path would uh, Kevin Harper have followed? I'd probably there have been a, a, a few actually, probably a pilot, a lawyer, or something to do with physics. Oh, hybrid. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Aiming high, always good to hear. I think you've, you've actually covered quite a, a few parts of this already, Kevin, where you spoke about sort of being the racial abuse you got as a, a young player, um, you know, growing up. Um, I can't imagine growing up as being sort of like a, a black kid and a Catholic kid in Postle Park um, or anywhere in Glasgow <laughs> was necessarily um, conductive to people being overly friendly to you. Um, obviously, there was there was Ricky Hill before you who didn't actually make a first-team appearance at Trez, but you have yeah. spoke about being the first... Um, Black Hibs player. I, th- I think it's something that you're both kind of a bit shocked by, but also very proud of. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I'm I'm really really proud of it. I think uh, for me, it's it's an, a great honour to be the first of any anything. You know, as I say, the biggest disappointment for me was that I, I wasn't aware of that. I wasn't aware that until someone, believe it or not, believe it or not, on Twitter had mentioned and said to me. Uh, so I, I had to check. I had to check the record books, and and I, I did see. I did see that. You know, I know Ricky had came over and. He didn't play in the first team. I think he played in a reserve game, maybe. I think, uh, you know. So for for me, being a being a black kid from from Porcel Park, you know, to be the first ever to play for play for Hibs, and I think the fact that I came through the ranks as well makes it even more special for me. I think um, I'm I'm going to be quite wary about how how I word this one, so forgive me. But there, there's one experience in your career that I think everyone refers to time and again when we're sort of pointing out um, sort of overt racism in the game. I remember being at the game, and I remember the the fans were giving you a bit of grief, and I remember the reaction of yourself and another player who was nearby when it happened. And I, I think I was only ten or eleven at the time, and even then I was like something happened there. You can just tell by the way somebody reacts yeah. something. You obviously came out and told your story in, in the press and it got reported to the SFA and, you know, no, nothing was done, basically. Yeah. Do you feel, obviously, you'll feel very let down by the football authorities, but did you feel a bit let down that Hibs didn't speak up more on your behalf as well? Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think, you know, for for me, that, that, that incident was real shock to me. It was real shock because I had experienced it as a kid, you know, Every 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 weekend, every weekend. But you know, for for me, I thought it would have been different in being a professional. I didn't think I would have got it as bad. Uh, and you know, for the captain to do that, you know, the Hearts captain to do that, Scotland international to do it, you know, was surreal for me when I look back on it. And you know, I didn't I didn't see I didn't really see anything. It, it gets shown, it gets shown, I remember it gets shown in uh, sports scene, I think it was. Sports scene or Scott Sport at the time. I can't remember what one of the one of the two. And I remember I remember the, the panel saying nothing about it. And me sitting watching it thinking, wow, they've not even they've not even mentioned that. They've not even done anything. And and I, I look but I look back on it and I think, you know, one of one of my one of my heroes growing up is 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 Mark Walters. Uh, and the abuse that he the abuse that he got, you know, with the bananas getting thrown in the pitch and everything, you know, the way he dealt with it was was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. And I think I think for, for me, you know, when that happened, I was really when I went home and the few few days I digested what had happened, I was really, really disappointed with myself for not making a bigger stand, you know, and and that was just a paper, a paper contacted me. Scotland and Sunday contacted me and and said we saw what happened. Do you want to speak about it? And I thought, you know what? Yeah, I'm going to speak about it because nobody else has spoke about it. And I, I, we, I talk. Everybody brings this up, you know, and rightly so because it was I was 18, 17, 18 at the time. You know, just trying to make my way in the, in the game, and I thought that if I spoke out, spoke out about it, then it would harm my chances of getting in the Hibs team and making my way in in football. And I vowed in that day when I went home and, and the, the days after it and reflected, I vowed that I would never never stay silent on racism or equality again. And I've actually had people within the game 
say to me, Kevin, if you don't stop speaking about racism, you're never going to get back in. And for me, people in the game actually saying that tells me a lot of where Scottish football is regarding racism. You've you've definitely touched upon it there, and it's um, I mean it's harrowing to hear about but the fact that. You know, we can look at this incident from decades ago at this point and say, well, we're actually not at a point where we can say we've improved enough. You know, your experience as a player, a young player, as you've, you've mentioned, is one thing. You've also experienced um, time as a, as a manager in, in Scottish football. You know, how was that experience for you? Um, you know, where did you where did you find that, you know, your position as, as a, the first black manager in 15 years sort of made your experience different? And and as you said, there's, there's figures in Scottish football that have kind of discouraged you from speaking out. I mean, how does that impact a, a black manager that wants to, or a black coach that wants to pave their way in, in the game? I, I think for me, if it wasn't for my wife uh, and my kids, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't have pursued, and I, I still I wouldn't, I wouldn't pursue getting back into the game or getting into the game initially before I got the Albion Rovers job. And I think it's been well documented that, you know, the amount of, CVs that I sent, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I got one interview and my one interview was with Albion Rovers and, and I, I got the job and I probably got the job because there wasn't many great candidates available and they they thought, well, you know what? He came across the best, you know, and that's for me is all I ever want, you know, and all I'll ever ask of Anybody in football, if they're interviewing a black, white, ethnic, anybody, ethnic minority person for a job, is they don't look at skin colour. They just give an honest opinion in an equal position. You know, for me, Kevin Harper wants an equal shot at getting a job, not because he's black, because I've got a good CV, you know, and I deserve an interview. You know, I've seen so many people in with less qualifications, less experience than myself get jobs that I've been in for and not even got a reply for. And that happens in everyday life. I get that. I understand that. And, you know, but ultimately when any walk of life, if there's if there, if it takes 15 years for a black man or a black woman to get in at any in any walk of life, there would be outcry in any any other any other area of world. If it's politics, you know, education, you know, just in you know a shop, there would be outcry. But for some reason, it's acceptable in football. And I was the first I was the first black manager in fifteen years. But when you when you think there hadn't been a man a black manager in the Premier League until Alex Dyer took over for 17 years. For 17 years in the top flight. And even now, even now, there's more, there's more managers in Scottish football that have been called out on racism than there is black or ethnic coaches or managers in the game. I think it's it's an interesting point you've made, Kevin. I was looking through um, just a, a list of sort of um, black players that had played for Scotland, and in recent times, it was obviously Nigel Cosy who you've mentioned, who I think actually got a, a cap not long after you'd been in squad. Yeah. Uh, more recently, there's been um, Shea Adams, and recently uh, Jacob Brown as well, guys who are mixed race black players. Um, you know, one of the things that the sort of key thing they've all got in common is they're all sort of 
the ancestry route, if you like. They're all English guys who have got yeah. Scottish parents or grandparents or whatever. You know, so we're obviously we're we're struggling to get sort of young black players who are Scottish born and bred, if you like, through and in, into the game. And not long after Steve Clark became Scotland manager, I remember him um, giving an interview. It was around the time there'd been another another incident, and he was asked. Um, I think it was actually you'd been speaking at the time as well about the lack of black managers in Scottish football. And he said that what he found even in England, where you know there is, there is a, a far greater number of, of black players of, of English heritage down there. And he said that the problem was when he was even when he was playing and talking about doing his coaching badges, was a lot of the black guys said, Well, what's the point? I'm not going to get a job. Yeah. There's no point in doing it. You know, and I, I totally and utterly get that. It is it must be a horrendous feeling as a player to know, kind of like when when you hang up your boots, your opportunities are far more limited than what someone who's equally or lesser qualified is based at least in part on skin colour. Yeah. It is, you know, it is, and you know, has it has it changed? Has it changed? I don't think it has. You know, I, I think I think we say we say the right things, we don't do the right things. You know, because ultimately, as I, as I said, if there's if there's more people that have been called out for racism, being managers in Scotland than there is black or ethnic coaches, managers and coaches, then there's an issue. You know, we're talking about it, and that's. That's where I always I always see if you're talking about something that tends to be an issue. You know, we, we look at how how the women's games games changed and how women are coming into broadcasting, which is fantastic. You know, that there was a, there was an issue. That's why that's why we were talking about it, and that's why it's changed. You know, so I ask the ask the question: What's what what are people scared of? Are putting a black a black man or a woman at the head of their the head of their team, and I, I think when you when you think about even when you look back, look at England because there's probably been there's been more manage, more black managers in England than there certainly has been in Scotland. How many of the black managers get another opportunity? You know when you when you think of white managers that fail, you know on a on a consistent basis, you know. Black managers fail once, they don't get another opportunity. And I, I think there's lots of issues we can we can talk about this, you know, till the cows come home, really. And that'll still be going probably. I've spoken about, I've been speaking about racism for near on 30 years. And do I think that anything's changed? I don't. I don't. Because I don't think there's anybody willing to put their head above the parapet at the power where the powers that be need to be and go. You know what? I'm going to change this on my watch. It's almost as if I don't want this in my watch. I'll just park it to the side, and then the next person that comes in, they can deal with it. And I think that's what happens. It's it's almost like a jack in the box. It gets put back in its box, and then it bounces out again at some point, and then it gets put back in its box instead of actually dealing with it and going. You know what? Do we have a problem in Scottish football with racism? Yeah, we do. Because I think if you if you were to ask every black player in Scottish football and the prefer and the, from the, the Premier League down to the second division, if you ask every single black person, have you been racially abused in Scotland in football? I would say I would say at least at least ninety five percent would say yes. 
you, you've kind of alluded to it there without without saying in so many words, and we certainly won't stir controversy by, by talking about individuals, but there certainly seems to be a kind of divide between maybe an old guard that is still very much uh, in control of certain aspects of senior management of Scottish football, and maybe the wider public consensus. If we can talk about a team without mentioning a person, when Ross County made a managerial appointment not too long ago, uh, there was outcry about that. Yeah. I mean, how do you see that gap being bridged between the kind of public consensus and uh, the the people that can actually make a change? And and further to that, you know, what responsibility do, do clubs have to to stamp these kind of attitudes out? I think clubs have a huge responsibility on it. You know, it's it's a societal problem as well as a, a footballing problem. You know, I think we have to we have to gain together both society. And football. Football has a huge, huge platform. It's got a plat- platform bigger than any other sport in Scotland and in the UK and probably worldwide. You know, if if we're not willing, to, if we're not willing to make a stand on it, then we're still going to be here in thirty years' time. You know, and, and people people are either for it, for change, or they're not. It's it's simple. You know, you have to you have to make it. You have to want it want to change. If you don't want to change, then you're part of the problem. Because this isn't about this isn't about black and white people, you know, or black and ethnic minorities trying to overthrow the white dictatorship. It's not about that. You know, black black people will be marginalized for hundreds of years. At the end of the day, all that me as Kevin Harper is asking that people, black and ethnic minorities, get equal opportunities. That's all. I'm not asking I'm not asking for a job because I'm black. I'm asking for an equal opportunity. And black and ethnic minorities, whether you like it or not, don't get equal opportunity. Just to sort of round off on this, Kevin, I think one of one of the things that I kind of wonder about is is a lot of it, certainly in the football sphere, but pro- probably societally as well, is a lot of it subconscious. And I'm just thinking, for example, you know, when, when we talk about black players, there's a very set vocabulary about black players. They've got a language style. They're laid back. They're, you know, relaxed. It's you know, it's it's almost an implication, sort of like almost laziness is and you see it in sports reporting all the time and i think even as fans we can be guilty of it you know is it's something that 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 is said and you know oftentimes it's justified i mean someone like effie ambrose is laid back on a football path but you know i'm I'm going to suggest if a white player had the same style as effie ambrose it might not be the same same vocabulary that's used to describe them do do you think that kind of subconscious bias if you like play plays a big part as well i think i think i think there's i think there's subconscious bias i think there's institutional racism as well you know i think when you for instance you know there's been many a times where i've been standing going to go and go into the bank you know or get cash out the hole in the wall and there's been somebody in front of me you know and They've looked behind, saw that a black man sta- saw, saw me as a black man stand behind and brought their bag in a little bit closer to them, you know, and, and things like that. That's subcon that's subconscious, you know, because what what thing what what history is pre- projected or perceived that a black person is, you know, and I think I think you look at what's been happening in England. That I know there was how how the press worded, you know, what Raheem Sterling. You know his house and what uh, his teammate Phil Foden was. You know and how they how they how they worded it so so differently, more derogatory to Raheem Sterling than 
Phil Foden. You know, so I, I think we have I think we have to be careful. You know, is in society of how we how we say things and how we portray things. You know, at the end of the day, we're all equal. We we should be all equal, but unfortunately, that's not. You know, black and ethnic players have to work more harder than white players to get that opportunity. Black and ethnic coaches have to work even harder to get that opportunity. And if they get the opportunity and they aren't successful or they are successful, and they have to work even harder to get that next that next opportunity. And that's the way football is. Is it right? I don't believe it's right. No, it's not right. Do we have to change it? Yeah, we do. And I think when you look at the English FA and you look at the LMA and what they're doing, you know, the player to coach scheme, you know, black players going in and being around football clubs, you know, and there's many different things that they're doing, you know, and you hear of this and, you know, the SFA and the SPFL, I don't know what they're doing. You know, I'm not privy to what they're doing. They might have some amazing thing that they're doing, but as far as I'm aware, they're not doing anything. But at the end of the day, as I say, and I, I, made, that, I made this point, you know, the English FA are doing the play to, play to coach scheme and the big, the big thing that people in Scotland will say, they've got they've got more sponsorship than us. Yeah, that's that's right, they have. But if the SFA went to their sponsors, went to BT, went to Adidas and said, would you sponsor two or three black players or ex-players that we are going to put through this pathway of play to coach so that we can see that there's another there's an opportunity so that black players can see there's an opportunity for black players to get into teams. And we need a hundred grand just for talking sake, 30 grand a year for for three players. Do not try to tell me BT and Adidas wouldn't go, you know what? That's a great initiative. We'll we'll sponsor you that. Kevin, thank you so much for giving so much of your time to us tonight. We'll, we'll leave off with one last question, hopefully a, a more optimistic one, certainly. <laughs> but we, we really appreciate your, your openness and candidness in, in talking about these issues because there's, there's no way around it and there certainly shouldn't be. Uh, and, we, and we look forward to you being unapologetic in the future and talking about all issues <laughs> as you should be too. We, we just wanted to end off on, on rolling out the, the red carpet to you, talking about what your, your future prospects are, what you're looking to achieve in, in the near future. And, uh, and what does it look like for Kevin Harper going forward? I, th- I think for me, it's it's about you know coaching, coaching football. You know, trying to trying to make a difference first and foremost. You know, trying to trying to be you know a, a role model for for other kids that are out there that are are black or underprivileged as I was. That they know that you know yeah there is a there is someone there that has done it and we can do it. You know, my door's always open. You know, my my message boat, my messages are always open. Uh, so for me, I think it's it's about really enjoying football, you know, and and hopefully hopefully at some point getting back in, getting back into management or coaching, you know, of some capacity because I genuinely believe that I've got a, a lot to give, you know, and I, I think I've, I've proved that when I when I was at my uh, Albion Rovers. I wish I wasn't Man U, uh, but Albion Albion Rovers is just a slight difference. Uh, but you know that's for Kevin Harper. That's what it's about. It's about you know growing the, the, the management, the sports management company. You know so that we can get players and we can help them. You know look after their future. Uh, most importantly, and 
and give them the guidance and the understanding of, you know, of 13 years in the game. Thanks very much again to Kevin for um, joining us there. Um, some re- really interesting um, points that he made. Um, a, a lot of a lot of things I think we we expected from him, um, but it doesn't make them any any less worth hearing, in my opinion. I thought um, he speaks very openly, clearly very passionate about um, about what he's got to say, um, and he actually seems to be proposing some some solutions to a problem as well, rather than just listing problems, which I think anyone can do. Yeah, I think um, Kevin is potentially one of the most underrated voices in, in Scottish football at the moment. Um, he's always very you know, proactive in getting involved in, in, in fans' media as well as conventional media and talking about his sort of lived experience and, as you say, offering real you know, fundamental solutions to real problems that you know, sometimes people aren't, aren't able to, to offer up. And, yeah, I'd like to, to thank Kevin, obviously, for, for giving us a good chunk of his time and for, for providing so much honesty and insight. I think these kind of interviews are a dream because you know if you give kevin a topic he's he's someone who can just talk on it and, and actually for us it makes it makes it very easy yes yeah, so i think that brings us to the to the end of this episode um so thanks very much again for the the discussion gav um really enjoyable as always and yeah just again another huge thanks to kevin harper for um for taking the time